For great-looking T-shirts, hoodies, and sweatshirts, the TNT Shop is now open at tntradio.live. You're with Hervoye Morich on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Hey, forget Hawaiian shirt Friday. It is TNT Radio shirt Friday for those watching TNT Vision, Radio Vision. I'm donning my TNT Radio merch. Um, We got the next two hours coming up. William A., it's been a while since I've spoke to him. He's a great thinker William Walter K.substack.com. Uh lately he's been focusing focusing on Russia. So we'll be talking uh Russia and Putinism. He sent me a list of like 20 books he's been reading <laughs> on Putin and as always Jose Nino, Venezuelan American, uh, will join second hour to close out the week. And um I mentioned yesterday this news story, this fake news story uh regarding uh, Mexico, the Mexican government rejecting the WHO totalitarian treaty. Uh, and I was right. Now, uh, the X, what do you call them? Community notes has added um, a note saying what I said yesterday, that this is not a document written by anyone affiliated with the Mexican government. It is a right of constitutional petition, allows which allows individuals to challenge government actions. And so a lot of... Uh, Medical freedom uh, influencers were saying, you know, doing the whole trust the plan QAnon thing. And uh, I'm sorry, no, you know, these these petitions are a dime a dozen. So really, I'm not really getting my my hopes up. That the, do you really think the Mexican government's going to tell Tedros the terrorists like get out of town? I I I, I doubt it. So you know, we got to keep trying. I'm not saying not to keep trying, but uh, we lose credit credibility every time we do um something like this especially since the world uh, world's governments the world government and the military intelligence uh information ops that are on us they've got the magnifying glass on us so we need to be as academic and accurate as possible shane mcgowan of the pogues passed yesterday at age 65. Uh, i actually went to see the pogues in chicago in 2008 and surprise surprise no shane mcgowan he was inebriated so he couldn't perform totally total surprise uh but the ban went on they they said you can get your refund 30 bucks or um we'll play for you and um i'm like i'm here let's let's hear it it was an amazing show back in 2008 the pogues even without shane mcgowan so he has he has left us uh, and for people who don't know, uh, again, the Pogues, just search search them, um, you know, uh, a great Irish band from back in the day. Uh, what else we got happening? COVID-1984 forever is, is what's happening. Uh, the trend continues, you know, first China, Netherlands. Now a mystery outbreak of pneumonia has hit several parts of China. And now Ohio is the first American location to report an outbreak of the illness with an extremely high number of children being hospitalized they're focusing now on the kids for maximum you know uh freak out emotional response and then you've got these uh freaks these five senators asking biden to impose china travel ban after respiratory illness cases led by mark marco rubio 
deja vu all over again december you know here we are december 2023 i'm i said i'm not playing this game i i am not playing this game this was one of the reasons i said i'm not traveling internationally uh for the time being because i'm not going to be stuck anywhere where i'm going to be forced to wear a mask uh or have my temperature taken or anything like that so we need a, we need more people to say no what can i tell you um and just following up on my chat yesterday with people's uh party of canada candidate rene de Vries, he had commented on this that uh, i looked at the story today the bank of canada survey uh basically re regarding the algorithm ghetto the digital the canadian cbdc the vast majority of respondents in canada don't trust the central bank to issue a secure digital currency so that's some good news the problem is we know that these governments will do these polls everyone says we don't want it you guys suck we don't trust you and then the government just does it anyways so so um but still uh you know these these things do have an impact resist 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 uh don't comply do you know keep it pushing back uh what else we have going on some more economic news rice nears 15 year high as a global food crisis much worse than 2008 so that can't be good because rice is a basic staple for many parts uh, for a great um you know percentage of the world population uh and also wolf richter over at wolf street a great uh, website was explaining how there's been this uh huge crash in unrealized losses on securities at commercial banks um I think the loss has jumped like 22 percent to 684 billion dollars in the third quarter so really bad news there and Mises reports are the ch chickens coming home to roost for the U.S Treasury the U.S is in a debt spiral and there's no easy way out so it looks like we're getting into some very serious problems financially with the American empire the dollar the debt the treasuries all of that stuff uh it's it it, it it does seem like maybe this time we are reaching that inflection point uh and getting ready to cross that Rubicon uh so yeah a reminder if you missed your favorite TNT radio show or interview you can simply listen back when you want, whenever you want. Just visit episodes on the TNT Radio website, tntradio.live. We're also on all the major podcast platforms, such as Apple, Google, Spotify, Amazon, Podbean, iHeart. Tune in. Do leave us a podcast review while you're there. There's no reason to miss anything on TNT Radio. Bringing you a worldview. I like to hear what's going on around the world. Today's News Talk Radio, TNT. According to a new congressional report, the United Soviet States of America must expand and modernize its nuclear arsenal beyond planned improvements to deter combined aggression from communist China and Russia. Here with the story joining me now is TNT Radio news producer Adam Clark, also known as Ruckus. Thanks, Rory. I love the name of this Congressional Commission. It's the Congressional Commission on the Strategic Posture of the United States. Yep. 
Um, very interesting. Uh, but they say, uh, at least this report does, that planned nuclear capacity limits the United States' ability to effectively prevent a war with China and Russia. The report says, quote, given current threat trajectories, our nation will soon encounter a fundamentally different global setting than it has ever experienced. We will face a world where two nations possess nuclear arsenals on par with our own. The size and composition of the nuclear force force must account for the possibility of combined aggression from Russia and China, end quote. The report emphasizes that a new conflict with either or both of the powers could realistically result in nuclear catastrophe and would need to be deterred. The report goes on, quote, there is a growing risk of confrontation with China, Russia, or both. This includes the risk of military conflict. Unlike World Wars One and Two, a major power conflict in the 21st century has the potential to escalate into a large-scale nuclear war, end quote. I, did they figure this all out by themselves, Ravori, or they've been listening to the show? In all, the report says that current plans for modernization of the nation's nuclear forces are, quote, necessary but not sufficient, end quote, given the increasing capability of China and Russia to jointly threaten the United States with their nuclear arsenals. Quoting more from the report, quote, deployed strategic nuclear force requirements will increase for the United States in such a threat environment, end quote. Hudson Institute senior fellow Marshall Billingsley, who co-authored the report, said a key factor in the commission's decision-making was, no surprise here, the Chinese Communist Party's, the CCP's, rapid expansion of its nuclear arsenal. Mr. Billingsley said during a November 30th talk at the Heritage Foundation, a conservative think tank, quote, they're on pace to either rival or perhaps surpass the number of fielded nuclear weapons that we ourselves possess. Let's be clear, when you have a China that has gone from, let's say, around 250 nuclear weapons to around 700 by 2027, that's a fundamental game changer, end quote. Mr. Billingsley's comments referred to the Pentagon's most recent China military power report, which found that the regime likely already has 500 deployed nuclear warheads and will have more than 1,000 by the year 2030. Moreover, because of China's size and economic power, he said the nation cannot rely on coercive economic methods to bring China to the non-proliferation table. Um, quote, when you're talking about China, which has an economy nearly as large as ours, some of the tools that we traditionally have relied upon to deal with the Russians and the Irans and the Venezuelas and the North Koreas are simply not available in a Chinese context, end quote. As such, he said the commission recommended the United States increase the number of its uh, shorter and medium range missiles and invest in hypersonics to deploy both nuclear and conventional weapons. He said, quote, the sheer increase in the number of targets implied by this Chinese buildup suggests that the program of record that was foreseen back in 2010 is not sufficient, end quote. So, Havori, it was kind of like a, a bit of a, um, a sales pitch on behalf of the military industrial complex. To, hey, you guys, too slow. Can we ramp it up here, please? Let's get this party started. Am I right? What do you think? Someone definitely wants to get the party started. And um, it, it is true from my assessment that, you know, U.S. nuclear forces, 
do need modernizing. Uh, you know, I've seen articles and documentary films on how some of the facilities are still using, I think, floppy disks and <laughs> really old um, systems, which, which, you know, in the current um, environment do have some advantages. Uh, but it's it's kind of like, you know, how many times have you had a device that, you know, why fix what's not broken? Maybe some old laptop or desktop or something that, you know, has been working for 10, 15 years, 20 years. Um, hey, it's working. Why waste, well, you know, number one, money to uh, replace it. And then um, the time it takes the, the, that you have to invest the energy in, in, in figuring out how this new thing works and so i think that's just a timeless principle when it comes to this sort of stuff the upgrades and i think you know soon we'll be moving towards lasers you know the israel's famous for its iron dome system which the us helps finance and now they're talking about iron beam system missile defense is is, is becoming costly if not impossible you know that's why you had um, the strategic defense initiative sti under in the 80s under reagan uh was shut down because it's it's too costly uh you know hamas can send five thousand missiles in um to to break the iron domes uh overwhelms it, its systems and so um maybe that's why you need to focus more on offense but also um you know there people have been posting clips of, of kissinger there was a clip from uh the fantastic twitter account i think it's ben carlson um former dude from atlantic but how you know kissinger was discussing potential you know nuclear war with the soviets so yeah i think they do uh need to modernize but also let's not get crazy here you know bulletin of atomic scientists published an article yesterday talking about how they think north korea is going to use its nukes first and bulletin of atomic scientists they do some good work but they're total full-on globalists hyping existential threats and pushing world government i don't think kim jong-un is going to launch nukes first they are his insurance policy your further thoughts ruckus yeah i'm certainly not worried about north korea well wouldn't it be funny if ultimately they're the ones we should have been worried about um whatever happened to mad i thought we were all lived under this assumption of the mutual assured discretion uh destruction uh principle that like we're not going to do that because if one of us does then we're all going to just kill each other right um so i guess that's out the window now um could just be a bunch of blustery talk um throughout our entire lives I, if i'm not mistaken harori th this is this is the big play it's like you know you have nukes that's what keeps everybody at peace because we got nukes right or whatever um now it's like oh your nukes are better than mine oh, here we go again right if we're really truly worried about it and you were mentioning about lasers i think we we're probably heading towards more even more technologically advanced solutions that would involve like algorithms and artificial intelligence i mean my my web browser my emails they all know what i'm thinking or looking for before i even finish typing it you know what I mean? like before, before i finish thinking about it sometimes there there has to be some sort of preventive measure there but like okay we we understand the the zeitgeist and the political movers maneuvers they should be able to program a computer uh to to guess when if somebody's actually going to launch a nuclear strike that way we can get out in front of it i'm just saying you know if technology is as amazing as it is to offer me a sales on underwear just because it knew that the other day I, I ripped mine you know what i mean how does that happen but we can't prevent world war three come on man didn't mess with the algorithm i've heard people say you know if you, you, yeah i don't have pets you know so talk about pet food so 
the the ads for pet food will pop up and you're uh so now they think you've got pets when you don't stuff like this but uh you know our pentagon planners have gone mad and again they need something big that final push to to, to get us to relinquish our our sovereignty uh and, and get to world government because pandemic and climate is not enough uh and so they're looking how far they can go to you know using tactical mini nukes to have a limited um war the problem is that could become unlimited uh so i i think as you allude to you know humanoid robots autonomous weaponry is, is the future terminator basically it's going to be terminator and i robots uh so all right ruckus catch up with you in a bit william k will be joining us phone lines are open be right back TNT Radio's Kate Shimarani. Don't stop taking prescription medication. Always go and see your indoctrinated GP, always. But with psychiatric drugs, you have to actually wean off them. They're very addictive and you have to wean off them. Now, I find all this really concerning. But what I cannot get my head around is the worst drug of all. They just let it on the market all the time. Sugar, 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 sugar. And then that's not even to bring in like MSG, monosodium glutamate. And, and I, if I, I can say you know you go into one of these garages and you see all the people going for food there's nothing to eat in there i very rarely can find anything to eat in any of these places and if you go into the supermarket there's only the first two aisles that have got real food the rest it, it's not food and i see what people buy i've covertly actually filmed people's trolleys not them don't get all excited but i have filmed trolleys uh, to have a look what people are buying and it's shocking because what you eat determines what your brain's going to be like and your teenage brains do not stop developing till they're about 25 years of age. Kate Shimarani on TNT Radio. The Light is Britain's far-right conspiracy theory paper spreading hate and vicious lies. No, that's what the BBC say. The Light is the only national newspaper bringing you the real news and informed opinion on what's really going on today. You can subscribe, order copies, submit articles and read back issues on our website thelightpaper.co.uk and see for yourself why the establishment are so worried about the uncensored truth getting out to people every month. They've launched a new service called Wake Up Your Neighbours, where you can get copies delivered to the streets right around you if you don't want to do it yourself. The Light Paper. Not for right, just right so far. Thelightpaper.co.uk Internet. Internet. A stream online. TNT Radio.live. Today's News Talk Radio. TNT. All right, we've got returning guest William K. He's incognito this time. We don't uh, not on video because he's. I think he's afraid he might get whacked by the Kremlin. I'm just kidding. Uh, he's he's written a couple of books: The Green Swastika, Environmentalism in the Third Reich, and From Malthus to Mifepristone, a primer on the population control movement. Do check out his Substack, William Walter. K, that's William Walter K A Y dot Substack dot com. It's been a while. Welcome back to TNT, William. Always a pleasure. Always great to have you on. I think last time, you know, we talked previously a lot about uh, the green uh, agenda, the climate change ism, and I see lately you've been posting on on Russia. I think you sent me uh, a list of. Uh, if I can put pull, pull it up, uh, I don't know, like 20 books you've been reading on, on Russia and, and Putin. Uh, I wish I had enough time to do all that. But um, yeah, tell us, you know, tell us about the, the rabbit hole you've been going down. 
Well, rabbit hole is the word, and the enigma, I had already posted, you know, a dozen or uh, two articles on various webzines about the Russo-Ukrainian war, and one of the great enigmas, one of the great mysteries about the war is why is the northern front so quiet? You know, you've got the coastal front by Odessa, there's nothing happening there, but the active front starts at the mouth of the Dnieper River near Kherson, and it goes up, you know, through the Donbass, all the way to Kharkiv, to the border with Russia. There's about a 900-kilometer line of contact where it is, it's a bloodbath. It's, it's World War I with drones. Uh, and then you've got, along the northern front, you've got peace. There is there's very little military activity, abruptly starts at one point in, in Kharkiv, and then all the way across the what remains of the Russian-Ukrainian border, which is about 650 kilometers, and then the full 1,100 kilometers of the Belarusian-Ukrainian border, nothing. Uh, and I was thinking, well, why is this the case? You know, and there's certainly a lot of people in the Ukrainian military that wanted to attack to the north. They wanted to capture some Russian territory so that they would have a bargaining chip with Putin. And as has been pointed out by a lot of people in, in the NATO press, the Ukrainians would be perfectly within their rights uh, in terms of international law and the laws of war to do that. If, if country A has invaded country B, country B can invade country A. You could grab some of their territory, providing it's proportionate, and providing you don't commit any major war crimes in the process of doing that. So they would be entitled to do that. But they, but they have not done it. There's been some rogue bands sort of semi-affiliated with the Ukrainian military that have gone across. And there's been a lot of sort of you know, light mortar attacks and drone attacks and things across that border. But as of yet, Ukrainians have refrained from making any northern push. And when some of those rogue bands did it, I'm talking about, I don't know what you'd want to call them, sort of uh, resistance movements. They're not fully integrated into their... Uh, Ukrainian military groups like the, the, the Free Region of Russia, Russia and the, you know, the Polish Volunteer Corps, when they did make incursions across that border, that the undefended 600 kilometers uh, along northern uh, Ukraine and, and the Russian border, almost no resistance. I mean, they were, they were driving past there with you know, regular trucks, a bit of armored vehicles and that, but had a major incursion gone to the north instead of where they did do the second counteroffensive, yeah, they would have grabbed a great deal of Russian territory. But, they, they, but they're being prohibited from doing that by NATO. NATO is making it very clear to the Ukrainians that all of their military activity must be uh, towards removing Russians from uh, territory that Ukraine claims. They cannot go into Russia. And this is a rule that NATO is enforcing on the Ukrainians is causing a great deal of grief. So what we saw with the second counteroffensive, that the Ukrainians were attacking some heavily fortified positions, and they were getting nowhere. And estimates are they've lost over 100,000 soldiers and you know, thousands of military vehicles attacking Russia at its most defended points. It is attacking minefields that are 20 kilometers thick. It's highly illogical. The head of the Polish military, the Polish commander-in-chief, said that Zaluzny, who is the commander-in-chief of the Ukrainian armed forces, should be court-martialed for the, for the counteroffensive, precisely because he was attacking the Russian positions where they were the strongest. 
I mean, logic would dictate that you would find points along the enemy's line where they were the weakest, and that is where you would attack. But that is the opposite of what we just saw over the last, since June, uh, and it's been, it's been an absolute uh, nightmare for the Ukrainians. They've, at very best, pushed, you know, five kilometers into some of these minefields, but the minefields are much deeper than that. They've had no major breakthroughs and uh, just a, a massive loss of life. So, back to the Northern Front. The argument goes both ways. I don't know if you saw the article about um, uh, Igor Gherkin. He was a famous Russian military blogger. He was a, an ultra-nationalist. But he's saying exactly the same thing that the left is in Russia, is why don't we mobilize 5 million infantry, a mass mobilization, and just come pouring across the northern front, both the Belarusian-Ukrainian border and what remains of the, of the Russian-Ukrainian border. The Ukrainians have no defense to that. The Russians have, by my estimate, almost six times the human resources to draw upon. So they're not taking full advantage of their numbers, and they're not taking full advantage of the northern front. You know, you know, you know Putin likes to refer to it as the special military operation. The Russian propagandists are not allowed to describe the Russo-Ukrainian war as a war. It, to them, it is simply a special, it's almost like a police a sweep operation, which isn't really true. But what you do realize is that there are some very tight rules of engagement in place between NATO and the Russians. And the primary amongst those rules is that the Northern Front is going to remain peaceful for now. Now, having mentioned that, I saw two articles today, including one in the uh, in the Western press, that Zelensky is calling for a, a sweeping fortification of the northern front, like all the way to Poland, all, all the way to, to, to Kharkiv. And this is going to cost multiple billions of dollars. One commentator wondered, you know, where is this money going to come from? But in order to get the sort of fortifications that they're going to need, you know, once again, you're, you're really you're talking about uh, minefields that are at least one kilometer thick. That would, that would be at least a tripwire for a major attack. So yeah, and, things could be changing. I, I, you also saw in the, in the go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, I just, I, I, if you could hold your thought, uh, we're going to have to take a quick break. But I just wanted to mention that uh, it was reported today, Putin ordered the increase of the Russian ar armed forces yeah. by 170,000 military personnel per decree. And also uh, Seymour Hirsch on his Substack published today. I don't have the paid version, but it, it ends uh, the free version by saying, that the driving force of uh, potential peace talks has not been Washington or Moscow or Biden or Putin, but instead the two high-ranking generals who run the war, as you mentioned, Valery Zaluzhny of Ukraine and Valery Gerasimov of Russia, which is interesting. We'll get your further thoughts on the other side. We're going to jump to our headlines. Huh? What are you guys doing today? The news. Now, TNT Radio News. Sounds good. For TNT Radio News, this is James O'Neill. Israel this morning relaunched its offensive on Hamas, firing a barrage of missiles and sending warplanes over Gaza as a week-long ceasefire expired. President Emmanuel Macron announced Sunday that his government will introduce legislation this week to enshrine the freedom to have an abortion into the French Constitution. 
Legislation that would give courts the power to take away dual citizenship from Australians has passed the House of Representatives and entered the Senate on November 30th for heated debate. We're the pinup boys and poster girls for free speech. We just don't look as impressive as Vladimir Putin shirtless on a horse. Yeah. 24 7, 365. We never stop sifting fact from fiction, misinformation from the truth. From government overreach to the latest on mandates, big tech censorship to propaganda gone mad. Listen to TNT Radio and get the news and views direct from our expert presenters and commentators anywhere you go. Ask Alexa or Google to play TNT Radio or download the TNT Radio app for free from the App Store or Google Play. Today's news talk this is TNT Radio. We continue the discussion on all things Ukraine and Russia with William K. Check out uh, his Substack, WilliamWalterK.substack.com. He's got a couple of great books on the climate um, uh, agenda. And William, you know, it seemed last year there was a lot of noise and uh, ruckus coming to that uh, region of U Ukraine. You've been discussing. I've got the Google Maps uh, open, you know, there were all these reports of um, Belarus prepping, going to get involved, the war would spread there, and it's, it just seems all quiet on uh, on the northern, uh, uh, all quiet on all fronts right now. So, you know, your, your further thoughts and any speculations as to what might really be going on? It is not so quiet along the main line of contact. The Ukrainians are still launching attacks. The Russians are still launching attacks. Just to, to explain to the, the listeners the dilemma, Valery Zaluzny, Ukraine's count, uh, commander-in-chief, wrote a 10-page essay describing, this is recent, describing the front line. And the problem is neither side can, can break through the minefields. Both sides are very good at maintaining and rebuilding their minefields. And as I mentioned earlier, these minefields, the Russian minefields, are, are as deep as 20 kilometers. And all throughout that 20 kilometers, you'll try to drive through, there's going to be uh, trenches and foxholes. Plus, with the use of drones and artillery, and uh, artillery assisted by reconnaissance drones, neither side's engineering teams can make much headway. You have no element of surprise because of the drones. And the moment your engineering teams with their specialized equipment start to work on these minefields, they come under intense attack. It is impossible for them to have our uh, infantry support because of all the artillery attack, attacks. So both sides are stuck you know, the, along the main line of contact, setting aside the northern front, which, you know, the birds and the bees, you know, frolic in the day because there's no fighting going on. Uh, along the main line of contact, total casualties now are probably, over the course of the two years, you know, several hundred thousand dead and wounded. So it is you know, a major conflagration. The Russians are committed to taking all of the Donbass. They've just about that, which consists of two oblasts or two provinces or two states of Ukraine, uh, they've got almost all of one of those Luhansk, but they've got about 45% to get yet of the other half of Donetsk. So it, the onus is now on the Russians to go on the ground offensive and try to press through the Ukrainian minefields, and they've had very little luck at doing that. Along the lane, main line of contact, 
with the exception of the southern oblasts of Kherson and Zaporizhia. If you just look at the main line at Kharkiv, Luhansk, and Donetsk, those, the front line has not moved more than five kilometers one direction or the other over two years. It's just where we are with modern technology, landmines, you know, assisted by uh, reconnaissance drones and things like that are now impenetrable. There's also been sort of a revolution in infantry-fired, shoulder-fired, anti-armor weapons. And uh, Zaluzny's, his paper reads like a, an endorsement page for various uh, types of weapon systems. But, you know, the British, the Swedes, the Americans, they all make very sophisticated uh, shoulder-fired missiles, which also makes clearing these minefields almost impossible because you've got infantry all through there firing these rockets at you. So... What Zaluzny is saying, and he's been confused as some sort of peacenik. No, what he is saying is this war is going to go on for another couple of years. It's going to take time for NATO countries to really get their production capacities up to scale. They've got a lot of good weapons, but they're not manufacturing anywhere near the scale that it's going to take to win. And what, they, what the Ukrainians need more than anything right now are hundreds of thousands per month of just old-school uh, artillery shells. So he, say, he's not, he never said the word stalemate. He said that we're at a point right now where neither side can break through these minefields. The only way that Ukraine is going to succeed is if they can overwhelm the Russian infantry with precision rockets and precision uh, artillery, and then they can get to work on these minefields. Plus, he also wants a lot more money spent on tunnel digging and a lot more uh, on electronic countermeasures. Like right now, the Russians sort of dominate the field in terms of electronic warfare, electronic counter uh, measures. Uh, the Russians have the ability to turn off satellite reception completely over the whole battlefield at a switch. They turn on satellite reception when they want to use it for their missiles, the GPS system, and they turn it off when they don't want to use it. And they do this through powerful jammer trucks that they've got all along the front line. But Zaluzny talks about these and he says we need, you know, what the Ukrainians need is electronic uh, warfare superiority. NATO could do this, but it's going to take time and it's going to take a lot of money. So Zaluzny is not someone saying that you know, this war is over. And there's a lot of commentators talking about this war is over. No, we're not even at half time. You know, what Zaluzny wants is going to be a lot fewer, you know, ground assaults against these impenetrable positions and a lot more just standing back and bombarding the Russian side with artillery, short-range rockets, and hopefully getting to the point where they can start blotting out Russian uh, communications and Russian guidance systems. Uh, one of the most interesting things is this, uh, that you know, the, the GPS is satellite-based, and because the Russians have the switch where they can turn satellite reception on or off, uh, what Zaluzny is calling for is misdescribing, but they want a local positioning system the beacons and, and that are sending out the signals that the missiles are using to, to navigate and to locate themselves, those signals are going to have to come from ground, an array of ground-based beacons, but because they're going to be targets themselves, they have to be on large trucks. So there's, there's going to be, the Russians already have this in place. They've got a vast array of trucks that have uh, responding beacons and jammers on them, and they're constantly moving around in the backfield. And they can jam signals, but they can also be used uh, by their own missiles to correct their flight paths on the way to the, uh, their targets. Uh, and he was saying, we have to be able to beat that in order to win this war. So what he's calling for is hundreds of billions of dollars in 
in R&D and in, in, in building up NATO's capacity to produce uh, these, these weapons on, on scale. Uh, he's not talking about ending this war. Yeah, I, I'd agree with you that I don't think we're nowhere near halftime. But I, I also do think that for many involved, this helps solve some problems uh, and they wouldn't mind keeping it uh, going. You know, it, it solves domestic problems, whether it's for the EU or, or, or Russia, you know, discontent. Uh, and just recently, the West, um, there was a publication talking about how on the pretext of Ukraine, they want to create sort of, what did they call it? A military Schengen, basically a European army. So, you know, Brussels has been clamoring for their supranational glo globalist structure, and then they always need pretexts to, to, to um, formulate these things. And so, you know, they could use the Ukraine pretext to say, hey, we need an EU army. Um, and I think, you know, also developing new tech, as you've just been describing, which is always the case in wars. And I, I'm afraid that whenever, if, if whenever this war is finished, a lot of this new tech uh, will come home to roost and to be used against us. You know, what we saw in Iraq, uh, now it's been brought back domestically in the U.S. to, to, to be uh, applied in the police state there. So, you know, any other thoughts on that or um, as well as oh, definitely. Putin? Oh, uh, <clears throat> You're hitting the nail on the head. As far as the West concerns, this, you know, what General MacArthur described the Korean War, <clears throat> it was a gift from Mars. You know, because World War II had just ended. It looked like they were going to have to wind everything down. And then the Korean War came, and it was a gift from Mars. The Ukraine War has been a gift from Mars for the, uh, the NATO military-industrial complex, not to be confused with the American one. They, if you take a look at that entire uh, industrial complex, it's an enormous organization, and this is a godsend for them. They're going to get hundreds of billions of dollars uh, in contracts. A lot of that's going to go towards research and development. Some of those new technologies are amazing. I like those. They have drones that drop fish nets on other drones. Uh, I, can't, I can't wait till they have just drones that have just butterfly nets. Uh, they've also got these uh, massive robotic tunneling machines that tunnel using... Uh, high-temperature electric torches, and they just burrow their way underground. They want to put billions into developing that because it's, you know, this tunneling is becoming the new, uh, the new warfare system. You've got to really develop new ways of doing that. So this is a, a bonus for them. This is what they want all the time. The real enigma, another enigma, <clears throat> is do they want regime, does NATO, those countries, do they want regime change in Russia? That's the, the, you know, the trillion-dollar question. Because I went into I mean, it believing It seems they like did, they do. No? And now, go, go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, it seems like, I mean, that's what they've been talking about since forever, no? It seems like they want Putin out? Or... No, it's, no who, who has been talking? I know that, you know, the president of Lithuania, he specifically called for regime change. Canada, you're talking to a Canadian, Canada's foreign minister specifically called for a regime change. <clears throat> Joe Biden, you know, sleepy Joe Dementio, uh, he accidentally called for regime change. And then his aides, you know, Blinken and, and Sullivan jumped uh, up very quickly and, and walked all that back. Uh, Macron in France has very specifically come out against regime change. So has Schultz in Germany. It is the official position of the Americans, British, 
Canadians, all of these countries, that they do not want regime change, that regime change is not an objective. Uh, what Macron said, he hits the nail on the head. He goes, okay, replace Putin with who? Because all of the people, you know, you would think it's either going to be the, the nationalist community or the far left or what they call in Russia the red-brown coalition. If those people come into power, that war is going to put a zero on an end to it. Because those are the ones who are calling for total mobilization. They want to see five million troops pouring down over the northern front. If they did that, this war would probably not last three months. And you know, if, you, if you read what, the, what they're actually saying, this community, they want the entire territory of Ukraine annexed. They want the entire territory of Moldova annexed. That is the opposition to Putin. That, that Igor Gurkin, he was the most popular military blogger in Russia. He's in jail now. That's exactly mm -hmm. what he was calling for. Total mobilization. Throwing millions that, that of soldiers over that northern front line. That, that brings some questions. That. Yeah, that, that then raises some questions about uh, Putin. It, it's time for our break. Uh, again, people can check out William Walter kkay.substack.com uh, and check out some of his books. You can get them on Amazon, The Green, uh, Swastika, among others. The phone lines are open. We'll be right back. Deweaponizing weather with reality and perspective. As a meteorologist, I look for common threads in the weather. And common threads are absolutely essential when looking at the climate situation. Because you see, it's not really about climate. Let's take a common thread between Al Gore, Dr. Michael Mann, and our infamous climate ambassador, John Kerry. Al Gore, first of all, his father voted against the civil rights movement. Secondly, Al Gore was a state senator in Tennessee. Guess what's in Tennessee? A state park and a giant monument to the founder of the Ku Klux Klan. How come he didn't see that over there? What about Dr. Michael Mann? saying that climate deniers, and I suppose I'm one of them over there, are a threat to children and grandchildren. Very interesting since he supports policies that have reportedly ended the life of 60 million kids before they came out of the womb, three quarters of them people of color. And then of course, there's John Kerry. That's the man who supposedly threw his medals over the fence at the White House and yet we see him show up at these meetings with all his medals, right? What kind of hypocrisy is that? This is a man who wants us to start in the face of record-breaking food production, somehow or the other, get rid of the agriculture so that we can cut CO2 emissions. You see the common thread between all these people? They're all hypocrites. They all follow the same kind of thing that they do with climates. They're sanctimonious know-nothings, and that's exactly what this is about. This is TNT climate and weather watchdog meteorologist Joe Bastardi asking you to enjoy the weather. It's the only weather you've got. Here's a bushfire fact. Bushfires can occur without warning. So if you're traveling during bushfire season, here are three simple steps to remember. One, check the fire danger rating before you go. The higher the fire danger rating, the more dangerous the conditions. It may be safer to replan your trip. Two, think about the area you're going to and what you would do if a fire started. 
How would you escape the area if you needed to? And where would you go? Check if there's a neighbourhood safer place. 3. It's dangerous to drive through smoke or fire. If you can't find a way to avoid the fire, park in a cleared area, face the car towards the fire and turn the engine off. Then lie on the floor and cover yourself to protect yourself from radiant heat. Live bushfire ready. For more helpful tips, visit myfireplan.com.au today. This is the Hervoye Moritz Show on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. It's our final segment with William K. William Walter K. Substack.com. By the way, William, I think your Substack is relatively new. Yes, and I think it's a good it idea. Um, yeah. Well, I would, you know, I've had my own blog for probably 20 years, and I you don't want to get in the habit of just sort of writing it and not really knowing how much you know, people are reading it. So I, got, I gave myself a rule that I was only going to write things that other webzines would publish. And I did that for a couple of years. There's probably 40 webzines that do publish my stuff, uh, some of them fairly regularly. But it's, it's so frustrating if you put a lot of work into a bit of writing and none of these geniuses want to post it on their webzine. So I'm going to do both from now on. So I started the Substack several months ago maximum and I'm just going to post things there and sort of pitch them to these webzines anymore because I'm not going to you know allow myself to be held back by those people but back yeah, to Putin the question yeah, is what do you think it's obvious that NATO is very conflicted there are people within NATO that do want regime change in Russia uh, they are absolutely they're sick of Putin. They've not only demonized him in their propaganda, but you know the wiser and the dominant thinking is certainly no that they cannot get rid of Putin, because the people who would likely replace Putin, you're back to you know 1991 again. These people, <clears throat> even the nationalists say they would reverse the privatization. So it, it's going to be back to the USSR. That's the fear, and the fear is that if the Ukrainians start pushing right into Russian territory, this is going to cause panic in Russia and it's going to cause a mass mobilization. <clears throat> Putin stays in power by having the force ministries, the Siloviki, broken up over a dozen different groups. He tried to fight this whole war with mercenaries and militias and with Chechens and, you know, clowns like Wagner and that. And that was a disaster. When you really start moving millions of people around, you're really going to need the army itself. You're going to need the Ministry of Defense. And that article today uh, about Putin uh, raising the, the level of the army up by 170,000, it says in that that all of those troops are going to Ministry of Defense. They're all coming over under the control of Gerasimov and Shoigu. Whereas previously, they keep trying to create all these contract soldiers. This is Putin at work. You know, the, the neoliberal to the day he dies, he wants all sort of a, a business contractual relationship with the soldiers. He cannot ask the Russian people to sacrifice because he certainly has not sacrificed. So the more I debated this thing in my mind about do they really want regime change in Russia, I came to the conclusion that no, that absolutely do not. But it's, it's, it's a, a real dilemma for NATO. Like, how do you defeat Russia? How do you drive Russia out of certain territories of the Ukraine without 
thoroughly humiliating Putin to the point where there, he is going to be overthrown. So that's their dilemma. And it's why the, the Northern Front is so peaceful. Because you know, in Zaluzny's paper, he makes it very clear that you know, the Russians have this massive advantage in human resources, but he spells it out that Putin fears mass mobilization will inflame social tensions and will lead to some sort of political crisis. Putin is going up for election. Uh, not that they mean much in Russia, but you know, it's one of these sort of rituals that they're going through. So that is the dilemma. You know, that Putin fears that if we, if we rise up to like a five million man army, that Ministry of Defense is going to just shake him off like a, a bug on a buffalo's behind. He has stayed in power by fragmenting the military, the National Guard, the FSB, and playing them off against each other. And sometimes that can get right out of control. What happened with Wagner, you know, actually starting shooting down army helicopters and shooting down army aircraft, uh, that sort of thing has almost happened a couple of times before during Putin's reign. So much so does he depend on a highly fragmented government. But Putin himself, you know, so it got me into really doing a, a full-on dive into uh, the history of Putin, how it was that he became the president, and it, it became very clear to me that he has been an agent of the Western powers. He's been an agent mm. of you know, Germany and America since, you know, maybe as early as 1987. But, you know, what came out, like I've read now almost all of the go-to biographies of Putin, such as that appear in the, you know, the mainstream uh, university presses in the West. And Putin was stationed in Dresden, Germany. His KGB career was going absolutely nowhere. Uh, Stasi, the East German police, 1989, December, send a communique to headquarters of the KGB in Moscow, and they say that Vladimir Putin is in contact with German intelligence and or the CIA, and he is fraternizing on a very regular basis with an agent we know to be compromised. A KGB general sent, was sent from Moscow to Berlin. He summons Putin from Dresden. They have a two-hour meeting. Putin leaves that meeting, goes back to Dresden, cleans out his desk, and he's back home living with his, his mom and dad in Leningrad and telling people he's going to have to drive a cab for a living. He got fired in 1989, or at least demoted to the active reserve without pay. And a few months later, uh, Procter & Gamble, which was setting up a, a public relations operation in Leningrad, hires him. But this is someone who's... Uh, been really promoting the Western line, promoting, you know, sort of the whole neoliberal agenda since 1990. Uh, you could tell they were grooming him because they do a documentary about him in 1992 when he's working as a, a deputy assistant to uh, the mayor of St. Petersburg. And in that documentary, you would think that Putin was uh, running for the American Liberal, uh, Libertarian Party or something. He had the party lined right down. He was also, at that time, very pro-gay. But he never made a mystery of his era, a secret of his KGB past. That, that, is, that is a lie. So they always say that he, he's somehow hiding this. No, nobody bragged more about his KGB history than Putin himself. However, what he, what he gets all fuzzy about is how he ended up actually leaving the KGB. He's, he's issued three different versions of that event. So, so I, I mean, I think, I, I, th 
I think you're, you know, close to the truth. I, this has been the question many of us have been trying to answer, you know, Henry Kissinger just passed, Putin gave a uh, glowing, you know, um, feeling about Kissinger. And it's almost like that it's, it's like a good cop, bad cop almost between the West and, and, and Russia and it's almost like he's he's helping the West, and you know we, we we've uh, criticized before Russia and the multipolar world have implemented. They're still on board with the globalist project, with the UN SDGs, with the technocracy, with the QR codes, with the digital IDs. So it, it, it still seems like the but but the 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 LGBT thing is interesting because there are so many apparent paradoxes. You know, yesterday the Russian Supreme Court declared LGBT international movement to be extremist. So you know, we just got three three minutes left. Uh, William, uh, okay, further he, thoughts on this? He did an about face on the gay thing. He did an about face around two thousand and five. He started sort of. Uh, he changed his politics on a lot of issues. But this is that long after he'd been in power. What we're seeing is the same thing we saw with, you know, Panamanian dictator Manuel Noriega, the same thing we saw with Ferdinand Marcos uh, in the Philippines, the same thing we saw with Osama bin Laden. These people throughout the early rise of their careers were instruments of U.S. foreign policy. But over time, and this has happened, you know, 20 times, 24 times, the, the puppet goes rogue. The puppet now has enough money of his own. He's, he feels himself deeply entrenched enough in his power base that he thinks he no longer has to listen to NATO, you know, the, the dominant Western powers, etc. This is what's happened with Putin. He was definitely someone who was groomed and installed into the Russian presidency. This was done by Western intelligence agencies, without a doubt. The Yeltsin administration was, Yeltsin was surrounded by hundreds of Western intelligence agencies. They dominated with the Russian government during that period, and it was precisely during that period that Putin, who was you know, listed by five different European governments as being a mob boss, as being his organized crime kingpin, which he is, uh, uh, he was then installed over, over the complaints of those countries. Putin was installed first as the head of the FSB, where he, he purges it of KGB veterans. He fires 2,000 KGB, uh, former KGB officers in his first month as head of that department. And then he's appointed prime minister. You know, it's not as though he, he overthrew Yeltsin. He didn't. The people who were controlling Yeltsin selected him. The whole operation successor to put him in power. We never even got around to the, the September bombings of 1999, which he mm -hmm. was the central mastermind of. Yeah, but uh, well, we're, we're, we're out of time, he but was, yeah, I wanted to get your further thoughts on that. But I'm convinced as well that the 99 Moscow apartment bombings, that was a Russian state terror false flag operation. And then, you know, six years ago, I shook hands with Gorby Gorbachev. Russians hate him. Uh, so it's clear he was acting in Western interests. Gorbachev. Uh, Yeltsin was clearly under the you know Clinton regime. Time they, they openly write about it. Time magazine. So then, as you're yes. explaining, it would make sense that Putin would follow in that trend uh, as well. But he may have now broken off. Um, Forty seconds left. Yes. Tell us again, William. Uh, thank you for uh, coming back with us. Uh, where are the best places to find you uh, online? Just go to the, the, the uh, there's now quite a few uh, webzines that post my stuff, but the. Uh, William Walter K. Substack will get you there. Any new thing I write, I'm going to post it there as well. There's probably 
10 essays on Putin there now. I've read 20 full books on him. I've got his, I can tell you what he did every day of his life. Okay. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Hopefully you join us again uh, soon to get uh, further thoughts on anytime, the, uh, anytime. Uh, Mos- Moscow. All right. Uh, I'll be right back after this with Jose Bye-bye. Nino.